Good morning. Thank you to the praise team for the great music. Um, when I get ready to speak, and I don't do it a lot, um, but usually I wake up early on Sunday morning, brew a pot of coffee, and so I feel a little bit like Matt Foley. I don't know if you guys have seen that video. I don't necessarily condone Saturday Night Live, but uh, the motivational speaker, you know, come on up, Matt, from the basement. He's been down there drinking coffee all morning. So I'm going on coffee and granola bar, and, uh, but it's exciting to, to be here, and uh, I'm excited to share. We're, we're in the book of Galatians, and we're expositorily going through the book, and we're in Galatians chapter 2 this morning, and we're looking at verses 1 through 10. And this is not probably on the top 10 list of topics that people preach on from the platform, um, but it's really good. There's a lot here, and we're going to break it down, and hopefully you come away with a few things you learn and can put into to action. Um, <clears throat> odds are, or chances are, you won't remember this message, but we don't remember many messages we hear, but well, all we have is the moment that God's given us, and so as we're here, we're opening God's word. My encouragement would be, as you hear something or as you learn something, is put it into action. Take it and apply it to your life, and, and don't hesitate. And that's, that's really the benefit of listening to God's word being preached. And why God decided to put sinners saved by grace in the pulpit to preach, is uh, that's his design. So none of us are really qualified to be up here, but God is the one that qualifies us. So... Um, Picking up where George left off last week, you can turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Uh, we'll read verses 1 through 10 uh, in a little bit here. Um, but there's a, we're picking up mid-course of the Apostle Paul defending the authenticity of his message and of his authority. Paul had spread the gospel in the, the Galatian region on his first missionary journey. And there was a number of churches that this letter was written to. And after he had left those churches, after he had set them up, some false apostles had come in and called into question his message of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone. They had called into question his apostleship, and they had called into question his teachings in general. And, and I'm repeating some of what's been said, but not everybody's been here for the previous two messages, so I just kind of want to set the context. And Paul in this book responds very strongly. He doesn't come into it with a lot of niceties. He comes in with a, a strong message. And he's addressing these false doctrines and these accusations, and he's here to set the record straight and to make sure the gospel is clear. Galatians has been called by some as the first draft of Romans, uh, it was written before Romans, and it's a contention for the gospel of grace apart from wor the works of the law. It was so important that Luther, during the Reformation, uh, in his own language, referred to the book of Galatians as his wife. I thought that was kind of funny. Um, Phil Boom, two weeks ago, started us off in the first chapter, covered about the first half of the chapter one, and then George covered the second half last week. And for the sake of review, um, last week George talked about Paul's defense of his gospel, and he talked about how, uh, and of his apostleship. So he talked about how, Christ, how um, his ministry was about being Christ's servant and not man's servant. Um, the the, the uh, 
the folks that were talking against him were making accusations that he was maybe a pawn of, of some folks or um, that he was maybe at this for his own advantage. And so Paul made the point to show that really it made no sense to be doing what he was doing or teaching what he was teaching if he was about it, going about it for his own good. And, and so we saw that last week. We also saw how his gos- the gospel that Paul was preaching was revealed to him by Christ and, and not by man. And so it came to Paul a little differently than it came to others. And the problem that the book of Galatians is covering is that these false brothers were spreading the idea that faith in Christ wasn't enough, that it had to be faith in Christ plus something. And, and they were really teaching that if a Gentile was going to come to Christ, that a Gentile had to, come more, had to more or less become a Jew to come to Christ and kind of take a, a, a roundabout way to get to Christ. And, and the two statements we see in Galatians chapter 1 and then also Galatians chapter 2, we see two statements that said, one said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So that was one of the things that the false teachers were saying. And they were also saying it's necessary to circumcise them, that is the Gentiles, and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So this is what we're contending with this morning. So this was spiritual warfare. Satan was afoot to pervert the glorious gospel of salvation through faith in the finished work of Christ alone. And the gospel can't be, and we'll see, can't be a mix of law and grace since our efforts only pollute the perfect work of Christ. So let's read these verses. I'm just going to read through 1 to 10, and then we're going to kind of break it down. Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. I went up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. But we did not give up and submit to these people even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. Now from those recognized as important, what they once were makes no difference to me, God does not show favoritism, they added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised. Since the one at work in Peter, for an apostleship to the circumcised, was also at work in me for the Gentiles. When James, Cephas, and John, those recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which I had made every effort to do. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that the Bible is your word. It's written by you through men and it's trustworthy. Thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to understand your word and your thoughts. And Father, we just pray that each person here, you've brought them each here for different purpose, Lord, to see something specific here for them. And we just pray that you would speak and that you would make your word clear 
and that you would accomplish your purposes, which we know you promised to do. Thank you for the Apostle Paul, and thank you for the battle he fought here, Lord. And thank you for your glorious gospel. We just pray for your presence here, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Paul is walking a fine line in, in this early part of the book. He's, he's trying to do a couple things. One, he's trying to prove that his gospel, or the gospel that he's preaching, is the same gospel as the one that's being preached by the other apostles. And George covered that last week. So he's, if you reject Paul... You reject Jesus and his gospel, and you reject the gospel of, that the 12 apostles are preaching. So that's important, the same gospel, because that's what the false brothers were accusing, is that this was a different gospel. He wasn't preaching a different gospel. Second, Paul's trying to show that he was not overly influenced by the apostles in Jerusalem. And the apostles in Jerusalem were, I don't want to use the word kingpins, but they were kind of the big shots they would probably never say that, but they were important apostles in Jerusalem and leaders in that movement. And, um, and so Paul is showing that he wasn't overly influenced by them because he had received his gospel directly from Jesus Christ. And it wasn't from man. So he wasn't a pawn of some um, agenda by men and his message was directly from God. So that's another important point. Paul had only visited Jerusalem as a Christian one time before this, and, and in that time it was only a brief visit, and he only visited with a couple people. And the second time he visits Jerusalem, we see here, is 14 years later, or at least as a Christian, is 14 years later. So clearly, Paul hasn't been overly dependent on um, these major apostles in Jerusalem. Clearly, also, he wasn't living as a Jew because as a Christian, he wasn't observing the Jewish law, because if he had, he would have been coming to Jerusalem on a regular basis, three times a year. And he's showing that he was there one time when he was early on in his faith, and now 14 years later. So he establishes that he's preaching the same gospel as the other apostles, salvation by grace alone. He establishes that he isn't a pawn of the leaders in Jerusalem, or anyone else, because he hasn't been to Jerusalem, and because he received his gospel from Jesus Christ. And last, he shows that he's, in a sense, he's let the law go, and he's living by grace alone, and one reason is he hasn't even been to Jerusalem in 14 years. And Acts has a more detailed account of this, so if you want to dig into this a little bit more, um, Acts chapter, around chapter 15, and the chapters before and after are kind of a more in-depth version of this visit. I'm going to read from Acts 11. Acts 11, 27. And, and so this is the sort of one of the, I guess the question is, why did Paul make this journey right now to Jerusalem? And so I want to look at some of the, the motivators. So Acts 11, 27 says, In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now Paul was in Antioch. At the end of his first missionary journey, he landed there and he had been ministering there. And so some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. 
They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. So Paul is traveling right now this Galatians chapter 2, this trip to Jerusalem, he's traveling there for one reason, because he's being sent from Antioch. And he and Barnabas have a gift to deliver because of this um, plague, or not plague, but um, help me out here, famine that is coming. Thank you. Um, So he leaves where he's been ministering for a while with Barnabas, and they come to Jerusalem. And they responded quickly, which is noteworthy. We also see in verse 2, which we read a few minutes ago, that Paul went up according to a revelation. So that's another reason Paul is is making this journey, is God God called him to come to Jerusalem. And so there's a few reasons here, but one is famine relief from the church at Antioch, so that's why Paul's coming. Paul's coming also, we know, to defend or contend for the gospel, and he's also coming because he was asked to go via a revelation from God. And he's coming onto the scene, or he's coming into Jerusalem with two companions, Barnabas and Titus. So who is Barnabas? Barnabas has been in Paul's circle for a while. Barnabas went with Paul to visit Jerusalem the first time he had gone up to Jerusalem. And in fact, uh, Barnabas had introduced Paul to the Jerusalem leaders. Um, In Acts chapter 9, I'll just read a couple of verses here. Acts chapter 9, 26, it says, When he, that's Paul, arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a disciple. We remember Saul was killing the Christians not long before that. Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas had kind of helped bring Paul into Jerusalem and helped the disciples receive him in his first visit to Jerusalem. Barnabas was also, a, a, seems to be a close personal friend of Paul's. His name meant, in other parts we see his name meant son of encouragement, and we see that Barnabas lived up to that name. Wherever we, we see his name mentioned, um, we see him encouraging folks. Barnabas was a Jew, and um, that's a, a, an important piece of this. And then later, we see Barnabas um, searching for, for Saul or Paul and bringing him to Antioch where they ministered for a year. And then now they're coming up to Jerusalem for this trip. The other person with, with Paul on this trip is Titus. Titus is a Gentile who was, we believe, converted and had come to Christ through Paul's ministry. And Titus has had a letter written to him by Paul. We have the book of Titus. And Paul praises Titus. He has a good reputation. But Paul is bringing this Gentile convert to this council as sort of an exhibit A of the work that he's been doing with the Gentiles that God has sent him to do. So Titus and Barnabas, they're not uh, maybe big names. If you're going to name big names in the Bible, Barnabas and Titus might not be the first names that come to mind. But they are faithful men of God who are, have good reputation and that God is using, and they're accompanying Paul. And I think it's encouraging. As we, as we look at um, people God used in the Word of God, it should speak to us, because this work that God's doing didn't stop with the New Testament, right? It's continuing every day, and God has selected you, and God has selected me, those of us who know Christ as their Savior, <clears throat> to do his work. And so we can 
ask ourselves, how are we doing? Are we serving God faithfully? If, um, if our name were to come up in um, a letter to Bethany Bible Chapel, um, would it, what would it say? Are, how involved are, are you here? How are, involved are you in the ministry that God has for you in this community, in the world around you? Um, and so definitely a little bit of an aside, but as we look at these people, it's easy to think of them and put them on a pedestal. And in reality, they're not um, necessarily any better than you or I. They're saved by grace just like you and I have been, if you know Christ as your Savior. And they are doing the work that God put them out to do. So how are you doing? That's something we need to analyze with God really on a daily basis. So these men were going up to Jerusalem and the resulting meeting here <clears throat> that we're talking about in verses 1 through 10 is referred to as the Jerusalem Council. Uh, and it's covered in Acts chapter 15 verses 1 through 35. So if you want to dig a little deeper, um, you can get a little bit more of the nitty gritty of that meeting. But it's an important battle that had to be fought for the liberty of the gospel. And we've already seen that the, the false teachers that were coming in didn't like the liberty of the gospel. They had a problem with that. And we can appreciate fighting for freedom. We live in a country that's free. We, live, we enjoy liberties that others in this world don't enjoy. And sure, there's always attacks and other things going on, but we have it really good in this country. And it is because of the sacrifice of many that have been willing to fight for the liberties that we have. We, part, we have the gospel in its clear form, and part of it is because God used the Apostle Paul to go and fight this battle with the leaders and, and, and clarify things. And not fight the battle with the leaders, but fight this battle with the false brothers who are coming in. And if they had succeeded, we would not have the gospel and the clarity that we have it today. And so I'm thankful for Paul going and, and fighting this fight. Um, James chapter 3.17 says that, says the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable. I think that's an interesting um, sequence of words. God is, God's truth is of utmost importance. And sometimes it comes before relationships. Sometimes Paul's goal here wasn't to go and make peace with everybody. His goal was to make sure that God's truth was clear. Um, but God also does care about peace. So that's a, a good verse, James 3.17. So Paul walks into Jerusalem with a believer on his, I'm going to say on his left side, Barnabas, a Jew, who is well-liked and likable. And he's got Titus on the right, who is an uncircumcised Gentile believer. And these false brothers are saying, if you're a Gentile and you want to become a Christian, first you have to basically become a Jew. And then you could become a Christian. You have to put yourself under the law. And for men that were going to convert to the Jewish faith, that was, the first step was to be circumcised. To come to Moses first and then come to Jesus. And some of these big leaders, Peter being one of them, Cephas, George is going to cover this, I think George, next week, um, were kowtowing to some of this and, and living a double standard. I wonder how the gospel would be received today if the first step was circumcision. Um, the altar calls might be kind of quiet. Um, but 
this was a big deal, right? They're going to the, to the Gentiles and saying, oh, but you got to be circumcised. That was a pretty big hurdle to leap over. Um, but it wasn't so much the, the point of what the act was. It was really just the fact that there was something that had to happen in addition to coming to faith in Christ. And so this was a big deal. And, and for Paul to walk into Jerusalem into this with a, a Christian Jew and an uncircumcised Gentile Christian was a big deal. So verse 2 of Galatians chapter 2 says, I went up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running in vain. So while Paul was coming with urgency to Jerusalem with an urgent message and strong conviction, and we know Paul wasn't shy, he did not come in sort of guns a-blazing with bravado in a public forum and, and make his point. He instead wisely meets with the leaders first. And he was, not, he was there to straighten out the confusion that was being brought in by the false brothers, <clears throat> the idea that the gospel of grace had to be in addition to some action. He was also wanting to present the gospel that he was preaching to these leaders and, and make sure that they were in agreement with him. Paul didn't doubt his message. So as you read this, Paul wasn't going in to be validated by these leaders. He had received his message from God. And he wasn't doubtful of it at all. And we see that in chapter 1. But if he preached a message that the leaders disagreed with, that may have caused division in, in the group. That may have caused public unrest. And so Paul first met with the leaders and kind of got aligned with them so that when he went to the crowd, he knew the leaders were aligned with him. And I think it's a, a wise approach that should be noted. Verse 3 says, But not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. So Acts 15 goes into that in more detail. But they had this discussion, they had this meeting, and ultimately the leaders agreed, yes, they do not need to be circumcised. The Gentiles do not need to be circumcised, right? There was... There was a, uh, maybe a compelling or a pressure on Titus to be circumcised, but after this council, he was not. And thankfully, they recognized that there was no need for it. And this was a huge victory because it had taken the whole message of these false brothers and, and invalidated it and said, no, salvation is by Christ alone through faith you don't need to come be a Jew first. You don't need to be circumcised first. You don't need to do this and you don't need to do that. Christ has done the work. And so praise God that that, that battle was fought and they, the leaders saw it. They saw the message and they agreed. Interestingly, in Acts 16, um, Paul has Timothy with him and he goes to minister the gospel with Timothy to a Jewish region, and Timothy was not circumcised, and Paul went and had him circumcised. So 
that could be kind of confusing if you're reading this and you're looking at the decisions that were made. But that was a really different scenario. Here, Titus was a Gentile. And if a Gentile had to be circumcised to receive Christ, then that meant some part of the law had to be recognized or had to be observed to come to Christ for a Gentile. Timothy was a part Jew and part Gentile, and they were going to a region where the gospel, where Timothy not being circumcised was going to be a stumbling stone and was going to be a problem in terms of maybe hindering the message. And so out of love for those Paul was ministering to, he had Timothy circumcised to kind of remove that as a distraction. So it's important to discern those different situations. Galatians chapter uh, 2 verse 4 says, This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. So we've been talking about these, these guys a number of times this morning. These were not Christians. These were false brothers. So these were people that had come in with an agenda. They weren't believers. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. And Satan was coming in to undermine the work that Christ had accomplished on the cross. They were spying on the Christian Jews. They were not fans of this freedom that the Christians had received. My guess is they were probably very devout Jewish um, followers. And this whole idea that all of these rules that they've been following don't need to be followed anymore was probably a very big stumbling stone. And these men had come in to make sure that these Christians would be brought back into the bondage of the, of the law. And of course, they wouldn't have said it that way, but that's ultimately what, what was at stake. And that's what happens if we allow the message of the gospel to be corrupted. If we allow the word of God to be um, if we add anything to the Word of God or we handle the Word of God poorly, um, we, we end up corrupting the pure message that God has of his gospel and of what it is to follow him. And so we need to be watching out for this today. This is absolutely real, right? I mean, this is nothing new, but this world is full of confusing messages and the church is continuously under attack. You may not see it, but it's something to pray for and it's something to watch out for. And it's, and it's something that every one of us needs to be on the defense for and watching out for. We all need to be in the Bible, knowing what it says. We all need to be on our knees, walking with Christ, so that when these tests come, we will understand that this is an attack from the enemy. So, in this case, the, the, the gospel plus was circumcision, was the law. But our world around us has added all sorts of different things that they might like to add to the gospel. So um, a very popular one is you need to be saved, and in order to be saved, you need to be baptized. That's, that's one that's very confusing to the church. Um, but kind of similar to baptism, circumcision. The Jews had kind of missed the point of circumcision, and they had made it all about this act that had to happen, and it was just about the physical act rather than the heart and the purpose of it that was intended by God in the first place. And same way with baptism. Baptism is an outward showing of, what, of an inward change. And, and yet the world wants to come in and say, oh, but it actually is required. If you haven't been baptized, you can't get to heaven. Or we need to baptize you as a baby or whatever. Um, or maybe church membership or whatever it is. We, we like to add things to the gospel. And, and the things I'm mentioning are really obvious. There are other things that are more um, 
harder to detect that we should be watching out for. But in this case, it was circumcision. So let's talk about this for a moment. Sorry, that's a bad pausing point. But um, we're not going to talk too much about it. But the institution of circumcision, Genesis chapter 17, um, every male eight days old, God was talking to Abram, who had recently been, been named Abraham. Um, every male eight days old would be circumcised or they would be cut off from their people. And it was a sign of the covenant between Abraham and God. The law came 430 years later, and they had been doing this for hundreds of years. It was a physical sign of the covenant that God has had with his people, and they were very dependent on it. The Jews had depended on God's law for salvation and for righteousness for hundreds of years and really had missed the point that the Bible says everyone who does not do everything written in the law is cursed. So that these Jews that were depending on circumcision had already missed the point. Salvation was always through faith. If you look at Genesis chapter 15, you see that God introduces to Abram that salvation was through faith. Abram was declared righteous because he believed God. So there's a lot there. We'll just keep moving through this. Um, So while the law is good and it showed God's standard, it was only a guardian. It was never a savior. The law was never meant to be a savior. Salvation was always by faith. And there is more of this later in the book of of, um, Galatians that we're going to dig into, and it's it's excellent. Um, So now suddenly, circumcision was no longer needed. The separation between the Jews and the Gentiles was abolished by the gospel. It had been there for centuries. And so something must have changed. Something really significant must have changed because this circumcision was was the sign of God's covenant. So if that wasn't needed anymore, there must be something new. There must be a new covenant, and and certainly there was. And um, if the Gentiles and the Jews weren't separate before, something had to have brought them together. So what changed? Um, Most of us could answer this. Jesus had come. Jesus had fulfilled the law. He had established perfect righteousness. He had lived a life that you couldn't live. He had lived a life that I couldn't live. And he had then made his perfect sacrifice available to us as a gift. He had taken the burden of performance off the shoulders of man, and he had done the work in our place. Praise God. But this must have been hard for the Jews to have everything that they had kind of stood on change. The whole ground changed underneath them. And and so here Paul comes in with a born-again Jew and a born-again Gentile who is uncircumcised. And hopefully you can see the the difficulty of that. The old sign of, of, of God's covenant, circumcision, I would say has been replaced with a new sign of God's new covenant, and that's the deposit of the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our salvation. And so, is the gospel about faith in Christ alone, or is it about faith in Christ plus something else? Galatians 2, verse 5. But we did not give up and submit to these people even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. Thank you, Paul. Thankful for that. He preserved the truth of the gospel for the Gentiles, or or, I'm sorry, for the Galatians and for us. So praise the Lord for that. Paul did not cave. He would would never want to go back to a performance-based system. Paul 
talked to us multiple times about his performance, right? He had the best performance of probably a handful of people in that time as a Jew back before he came to Christ. He had done the performance thing, and he realized it was a losing thing. It was a losing system. And so of all people, he had tried that and recognized that that was empty. And so Paul was firm. He recognized, wow, if we're going to start bringing human performance back into this or human actions back into this, it's going to destroy the whole entire gospel. There's nothing left. If it's, if it's something that we've done in addition to what Christ has done, then it's nothing. When God's truth is at stake, it requires grace and wisdom to know where to be stubborn about the right things. But when God's truth is at stake, we need to stand firm. And we need to have discernment and wisdom about how to do that and when to do that. But Paul, thankfully, had kind of put the stake down here and resisted this lie that had come in. Praise God. Verse 6. Now from those recognized as important, once, what they once were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised. Since the one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. So it's important to see Paul is not disrespecting these leaders. Paul respected these men. He was not belittling them. After all, he had respected them enough to come to Jerusalem and to meet with them privately, so he recognized the leadership that they had, and they had agreed with Paul's gospel. We, we saw last week that Paul had had minimal contact with these guys. He hadn't been there for 14 years and hadn't even met with all of them before. And now he was finally sort of running the gospel that he had been preaching by them, sort of testing it, in a sense, um, with these important apostles. And they had nothing to add. And, and the, an important point here is that here's Paul out here, received the gospel from Christ directly, and here's these important apostles in Jerusalem who had received, who had even walked with Jesus. These were very important. Um, one of them was brother of Jesus. And, and they come together and there have been accusations of Paul preaching a different gospel, a false gospel, and they come together, and guess what? They agreed. It was the same gospel. And, and they had nothing to add. It wasn't, it wasn't a comment of, of dis, a disparaging comment towards them. It's just a comment that they had nothing to add. It was the same gospel. They were both preaching the same thing. And uh, praise God for that. And not only did they have nothing to add, but they recognized the work that God had entrusted Paul to do and to the Gentiles, they had already recognized the circumcision wasn't necessary. And, and just like Peter had been sent to the Jews, they recognized that Paul had sent, or God had sent Paul to the Gentiles. And it was the same, at, same God at work in each of them. We all have the same reason to come to Christ. Doesn't matter where you come from, what religion you grew up in, what nationality you are, what culture you grew up in, what part of the world you were born into, everyone needs to come to Christ for the same reason, right? We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Christ has paid for our sins. Verse 9, when James, Cephas, and John, those recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which I had made every effort to do. 
So they agreed. Um, and they went their separate ways. Not that they couldn't minister. It's not that Paul couldn't minister to the Jews. I mean, it, it's just really there was a primary mission that they each had, and God and had sent them on that, and they all recognized it. So coming to the end of this, we see that there's no prerequisite for coming to Christ. There was no need for the Gentiles to become Jews. There's no need to be circumcised first. The leaders at the Jerusalem churches wanted to make sure that Paul and Barnabas were remembering the poor, which they were already doing, right? They had come to Jerusalem with a gift for those who were going to suffer from the famine. So clearly they were active in, in ministering to the poor and they acknowledge it, that that was important to them. There are different ministries, but the same God. We see um, this in the word. The same gospel. We see, we talk a lot about, uh, when people come into fellowship, we talk about Corinthians chapter 12, how there's different gifts. Um, we've all been received by Christ, and I, w- I don't want to like throw that out there. If you have personally come to Christ and recognize that you're a sinner and put your faith in him for salvation and received him as your Lord, then you've received forgiveness of sins. If you haven't, then I don't mean to refer to you because it doesn't, you need to first come to him in that way. But those of us who know Christ have each been given a gift or gifts and God has us doing different things. He's got us talking to different people. You may be touching a person that no other believer will come across. Um, he's got different missions for each of us in the church. He's got, there's different things that you see around this building or in this body that other people don't see because God's given you eyes for it. And, and so, but we all have the same gospel. The gospel is the same. And we bring that hope to all those that we touch. And we need to be doing it unashamedly. And I'm thankful that these guys didn't just sit in an upper room and debate over doctrine, picking it apart, and, and then go to their homes and have dinner. They wanted to go out and actually minister to the people. That's an important part of Christianity. And so we need to watch out because Satan's got a trap on both sides of these things. Satan's got a trap over here where he is happy to let us go sit up in an in a ivory tower and wrangle over all the intricacies of the doctrine and what this word originally was and how it should be interpreted. And, and he's happy to let us sit up in those rooms and fight over it forever because it, it doesn't nobody any good. Yes, the, the correct interpretation of Scripture is important, but if all we do is sit and, and argue about little nuances and we don't ever go out and actually act on the things we're learning, Satan understands that's, that's going to be worthless. And then the other end of it is, is just making it all about service and not about truth at all. So let's go minister to all people. Let's just go be helpful. We need to help the poor. We need to fix everything we can fix. But then we leave doctrine behind entirely. And we, and we go out without any truth, accepting everyone for every, and everything that they choose to do. And that's also not what we see in the Word of God. And so what we see here is a, is a, a balance of like, they, they got it right. They made sure they were in agreement with the gospel that God had put together and had given to them. And then they were also going out and ministering and passionate about practically ministering the gospel. So let's not get stuck on either side of that. 
But the enemy didn't stop. Like this was, this was an important council that happened and it was very pivotal for the church. But the enemy didn't stop attacking it, right? The enemy didn't stop attacking the gospel. The enemy is attacking, attacking the gospel today. Um, so we need to be on guard. We know the enemy is roaming around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he's happy to devour us in any which way we'll allow him to. And, and often it is, it is the least noticeable things, I think, that it, the area where the enemy is devouring us. I want to um, wrap up with looking back at Genesis 17, where God is communicating to Abraham that he's going to bless him through Sarai. Genesis 17, and I'm going to jump in at verse 15. And God said to Abraham, get a drink quick. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and, sadly, my, my word, laughed, and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Wow. This is where God was setting on course his, his plan of salvation. And, and, and if you're not familiar with these verses, some of this might be lost, but God says, I'm going to bless you through Sarai. And Abraham, Abram says, No. I've got Ishmael. Who is Ishmael? God had promised to bless Abram before. Abram couldn't see that blessing materialize. In fact, his wife couldn't see it materialize. And so she had given her handmaiden to Abram to have a child with, doubting God. And that was Ishmael. And Abram says, no, let Ishmael be the heir. Praise God. Praise God that obviously that did not stand but we do this all the time. God had, was bringing his glorious salvation to mankind. He had, he was setting, I mean, the Jews praise Abram up and down. I mean, God praises Abram. He was a, it was a man of faith. But if he had, he basically was saying, no, bless us through my works. Bless us through the salvation, through the work that I've done. I've already got a son. I can't see how in the world you're going to bring a son through me, a 99-year-old man and my wife who's old. Here, we've already got Ishmael. Bless him this way. Don't we do that? We look at what God's doing through our own lenses and through our own understanding, and we, and we try to steer God down that path. And it's amazing to me to see this, but it's not surprising because I do this too. All the time. And, and so we need to look on God through the eyes of faith. And Abram had done that two chapters before, right? He believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, it says. 
But clearly, <laughs> thank you, Caleb. Caleb was tapping his watch back there telling me time is up. <laughs> Appreciate you, brother. No, that's good. We're almost done. We're almost done. Um, and, uh, and so Abram was trying to substitute what he had done, which was an illegitimate thing in the first place. But you know, God is so gracious. He, he's still kind to Abram. He even blesses Ishmael, if you, if you keep reading. And God goes on patiently and says, no, I'm going to bless you through Sarai. And, and he does. All, all of us were, were thought of at that moment. God was planning to save all of us, Gentile and Jew alike, through the great and glorious gospel. So let's not add something to it. Let's not substitute what God has done with any work of our own. Let's not substitute our logic in for what we see God doing. I gave my testimony at a small group this week. We have a new small group. And, um, and one of the things that kind of maybe crystallized for me was I'm not, I'm getting older, okay, 47, but as I um, have prayed about, I know a lot of you think that's young, but anyway, it feels old. Um, I've prayed for a lot of things for like decades. I mean, I, I mean, I've prayed for things for 30 or 40 years, certain things, and it's been amazing to me because God has started to answer some of those prayers, and it's been really wild that God is, like, I've just learned, God has a different timeline, you know? When you're younger and you pray for something for 10 years, you think, might as well quit praying about it. God's never going to do anything about it. No, he has a timeline. Keep praying. Keep talking to him about it. He's working on his timeline. And it may not happen in your lifetime. But it's not a waste to pray. Bring it to God. Trust him. And so I, uh, I praise God for his salvation. I, I, I pray that as you consider the things that we've covered here, now, first of all, if you are trying to come to God through something other than just believing that Christ died on the cross and rose again and has forgiven you of your sins, please reconsider. That is the only path to God. If you've come to God and you are, and you have, are substituting the blessing that he wants for you by things that you think are of value, that you've done, or that you think God needs to pay attention to, reconsider. Put your eyes on God and walk with him, which requires a daily discipline to even really block out the noise of the world around us, and listen and trust. Trust what he's doing. Trust what he's showing you, and, and remove your own logic. Remove the things that you're bringing in, just like Abraham was trying to do here. The gospel is glorious. It doesn't need us to add anything to it. It doesn't need us to add anything to it when we receive Christ for salvation, and it doesn't need anything every day after that as God is sanctifying us. Let's pray. Father God, um, thank you for your word, which is truth. Thank you that you allow us to just talk to each other about these things, that you give us your Holy Spirit to understand your word. Lord, we know that man was weak from the beginning. We see even Abraham, who is praised up and down, trying to substitute his illegitimate son, for the blessing that you had. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to walk with you closely so we can know when the enemy is attacking, so we can know when we're considering compromise. Lord, for anybody here that has not come to you in faith through Jesus alone, who has come to you through works, has come to you through some righteousness or something, Lord, please help them to cast that aside and to come to you through faith in Jesus Christ alone and to do it right now and not hesitate. 
Lord, just have your way with us. Have your way with us individually. Have your way with us as a congregation. Accomplish your purposes, Lord, and may we be a bright lampstand to the community around us. Lord, thank you that your salvation is good today and your salvation will be good in a billion years. We love you and we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for your attention.